Would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11? We're going to continue on in our study of these great heroes of the faith. Um, last week, the author really concluded his, his Old Testament examples of faith from the book of Genesis. We came to the end of uh, Genesis. And after looking once again at uh, Abraham's great test of faith, that's what we looked at, he gave us a glimpse of the state of the faith of the patriarchs uh, at the end of their lives. And he ended with a brief look at Joseph. And I just want to look at that verse again in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, just to sort of segue in here. It says, By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his, his bones. And if you were here last week, this was a reference to Genesis chapter 50, so the last chapter of the book of Genesis. And I have that verse for you, just to remind you, it's, it's verses 24 and 25. And it says this, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this uh, land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Now, we didn't look at the fulfillment of this verse last week, but we're going to do that today. Joseph's prophecy that the Lord would visit his people came to pass. They were visited by the Lord. They were led out of Egypt back to the land of promises. And, and, and then when they were, they, they were led out, the bones of Joseph were carried with them, which is an interesting uh, thing. And I want you to see where that happens. This, uh, Exodus 13, 19 says this, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So as you can see uh, by this, this verse, it was Moses that took up the bones of Joseph. And this um, reference regarding Joseph is really just a natural transition by the author to transition into the next hero of the faith, and that is the faith of Moses. Now, Moses is probably one of the most well-known not just amongst Christian circles, but in the world. I mean, think about the movies that have been made based on Moses' animated features. Still to this day, when I read about the life of Moses, I cannot help it. It's in my mind's eye. I picture Charlton Heston. I just do. That's who I see. I, I saw that movie so many times. Can't help it. But um, Moses is just such a great hero of the faith. But to the Jews, and that's who this letter is being written to, Moses, he was the greatest of all men. Um, even even greater than Abraham. Abraham was their father, but Moses was the greatest. Think about it. He was the great lawgiver. The law of God came through the hand of Moses, written on tablets of stone. He was the greatest historian because he wrote everything from Genesis to Deuteronomy. That was um, from Moses. Consider what scripture even says about Moses regarding his status as a prophet. In Numbers chapter 12, Verses 6 to 8, then he said, Hear now my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision, I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings, and he sees the form of the Lord. He also was the greatest saint um, that ever lived. You say, how is he the greatest saint because of his humility. Numbers 12, 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth, which when you consider what Moses had to put up with <laughs> is remarkable. 
and how great of a leader he was. It's remarkable that he was still managed to be the most humble man on the earth. And obviously, what everybody knows, he was the greatest deliverer of the Jewish people. And the deliverance is chronicled in the book of Exodus. And as I said, we came to the end of Genesis, so it's just natural that the author would take us to Exodus for his next, next example. But consider the end of Mo- Moses' life. <laughs> this amazing epitaph is written in Deuteronomy 34, 10 to 12. But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, and by all the mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Wow, that's, that's quite a, an end-of-life epitaph. So Moses' life, his life of faith, demonstrates something very important for us. It demonstrates that faith has the ability to confront opposition to overcome hostility. And that really brings us back all the way back to the reason for this chapter to begin with. Don't lose the reason why the author is writing this. These Jews who are reading this at this very moment are suffering opposition. They're suffering hostility at the hands of their own people. Um, And so some of them were even thinking about going back to Judaism, going back to the Old Testament way of doing things. And the author is trying to remind them of the faith that can overcome opposition. But fear gives in to it, and he's trying to remind them, hey, your great hero, Moses, had that kind of faith. So today we're going to look at the faith of Moses, and it's conveniently broken up into five by-faith sections in our passage in Hebrews, which makes it really, really easy. So this is Moses' faith. Let's read it. It's Hebrews 11, uh, 23 to 29. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, Because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for the amazing example and life of Moses. And and Lord, we we might be coming today uh, thinking, I I know everything there is to know about Moses. But one, the great thing about this passage in Hebrews speaking about these great heroes of the faith, is that we get a different view of of what they did. We get the behind the scenes, what they were thinking, what their motivation was. And so I pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts to receive truth, because truth it is. We need your spirit to guide us into truth. Be with us today, Lord. We want to know more about you, but most importantly, we want to know more about our faith and how important it is. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as we, we begin the study, we see that this first by faith, we're going to look at this first by faith section, it's not actually the faith of Moses. Did you notice that? It's not his faith. It's the faith of his parents. <clears throat> look back at verse 23 again. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now, 
who were Moses' parents? Well, to do that, we, to understand that, we've got to go back to Exodus chapter 2. So we're going to be in Exodus 2 today, the rest of the time. And anytime we come back to the next verse in Hebrews, you're welcome to turn back to it. But to make it easy on you, I'll have the verses up on the screen for you. But in Exodus chapter 2 is where we learn about uh, the parents of, of Moses. And in verse 1, it says this, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Now, no name of the child is mentioned here, but just by what is said here, we can see that aligns with Hebrews. This is a a child that was born, seen as beautiful, hidden for three months. And the parents are both children of Levi, which is interesting. If you remember our study of Hebrews, um, you, you had to be a priest. You had to be from the line of Levi. Um, and Aaron, Moses' brother, certainly was the first uh, priesthood, Aaronic priesthood coming through that line. So it all makes sense what God was doing. But to find out a little bit more about his parents, just skip ahead to chapter 6 of Exodus. Really briefly, we're going to look at verse 20. Chapter 6, just a few pages to the right. <clears throat> look at verse 20. It says this, Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife, and she bore him Aaron, and Moses. So there you have the father, Amram, and you have the wife, Jochebed, and you have the two boys listed there. Aaron is the firstborn, and then you have Moses, and what's not mentioned, and usually not in the genealogies, is a sister, Miriam. She was older than Moses as well, and we see that a little bit later on. But why did the hiding of Moses take place in the first place? What was the deal with uh, that? Well, you have to remember, going back to Exodus chapter 1, that a lot has happened between Joseph, where we ended last week, and his death to this point now. So to see that, let's go back to chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. And Joseph died, all of his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful. They increased abundantly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them, just like God had promised. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. They built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. They made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. And so the children of Israel, remember Israel was the new name given to Jacob because um, all of the nations would come through his children. Now they had become slaves in Egypt because the king had died. He had no clue who this Joseph was or any of his children. He just knew that they, these people were multiplying, and now they were more in number than the uh, Egyptians. All right, so this makes the king of Egypt nervous, so he issues this command in verse 15. The king of, the Egypt, of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when you do the duty of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. 
But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, but did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and they give birth, birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied, and they grew very mighty. So these midwives, given this command, they are commanded to murder those baby boys, but instead they let the parents keep them alive. So the king of Egypt, that plan fails. He doesn't work going through the midwives. So he issues a second command, and this is to his own people. And in verse 22, it says, Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So he's going to kind of circumvent the midwives. He's going to go to everybody. If you see a, a male child, they're food for the crocodiles. Throw them in the Nile. But here we learn the reason that the parents hid Moses. He was given a death sentence. He was to be destroyed. Now, our Hebrews passage and the account in Exodus both tell us that they saved Moses because they saw that he was a beautiful child. They saw that he was a beautiful child. Now, I find that odd because, let's be honest, what parent, when their child isn't born, doesn't say, oh, this is the most beautiful baby in the world. Like, I have the most beautiful child. <laughs> it just seems like, why would that even be there? It almost seems to imply that if the child were born ugly, they would have been like, yeah, take him. Yeah, he's fine. I don't care about this one. So what does this mean, that he was a beautiful child? Of course he was a beautiful child. I love it. Stephen's speech in chapter 7 of Acts. Uh, we keep getting a lot of insight from Stephen's speech, and we're going to get more today. In Acts chapter 7, 17 to 20, it says this. He kind of recounts the whole history. It says, When the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers and making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was, and here it is, well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. Now, here's what's really interesting. That word well-pleasing in this verse is the same Greek word used in our passage in Hebrews eleven twenty three, 23, rendered beautiful. Look at it again. Hebrews eleven twenty three 23 says, because they saw he was a beautiful child. Same Greek word, well-pleasing in Acts, beautiful here. So beautiful is astios. It means fair or also proper, genteel, you know, well-bred. In fact, if you have a King James Bible, it will say he was a proper child. If you're reading in the NIV, it will say he was no ordinary child. And so this is the idea here. This is the same Greek word used in the Greek translation in Exodus chapter uh, 2 here. Again, the word beautiful. And those are the only places in the Bible that word is used, which means it's no ordinary word, and Moses was no ordinary baby. There was something very special about this baby. But here's an interesting fact on top of that. You know Josephus, the great Jewish historian, in his Antiquities of the Jews, he detailed that there was a divine communication that was made to Amram, the father. And, and during that, uh, during, that came to him during the pregnancy of, of Jochebed. And the communication was that the child about to be born was going to be a deliverer of the nation of, of Egypt. Now, listen to what he said about the details. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, These things revealed to him in vision, Amran, on waking, disclosed to Jochebed his wife, 
and their fears were only the more intensified by the prediction in the dream. For it was not merely for a child that they were anxious, but for that high felicity for which he was destined. Now, we got to keep something in mind. Josephus is not inspired revelation. It's not the Bible. But it also doesn't contradict the Bible. Amram and Jochebed must have had some kind of indication about the future destiny of Moses. And we'll see some proof of that in a moment. But for anyway, they had a greater fear of God than they did the fear of the king of Egypt. Looking at our Hebrews passage again in Hebrews eleven twenty three, 23, okay, it says they were not afraid of the king's command. For some reason, they had a greater fear of God. They feared God and not the king's command. And God, because of that fear that they had, was able to preserve Moses. And what we're going to be looking at today are the results of faith. Because of the faith of the parents, we see faith's preservation. And that's the first point, faith's preservation. After the three months, his parents couldn't hide him any longer. He was probably too loud or too busy, too active. Uh, And so they came up with a daring plan. Look back to Exodus chapter 2. Let's see what happens next, beginning in verse 3. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, uh, women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. So Moses, his great name, this great name uh, Moses, uh, is not a name given to him by God, like, like Isaac was. It's not a name given to him by his parents, like the, the patriarch. What's amazing about Moses here is that his name is given to him from an Egyptian pharaoh's daughter. She calls him Moses. She names him, and she adopts him. And in this amazing way, Moses' life is preserved. In fact, because his big sister Miriam was, was there to suggest to, um, to the, the, the daughter to go and fetch a Hebrew nurse, Abraham was able to be nursed and raised by his very own mother, Jochebed. Amazing. So not only was his life preserved, we all know that, but you know what else was preserved? And this is far more important. His faith was. He was raised in the, in, in the, in the home of his actual mother. And so as he was raised, he began to be taught to believe in the God of Israel and not the gods of Egypt, to learn to fear the God of Israel and not the gods of Egypt. He learned about his origin, that these were his people, and probably made aware of his destiny, that he would be the deliverer of the people, to believe in the promises that God had made to his people that they would be given a land outside of Egypt. His faith was preserved through the faith of his parents. Now, I don't know about you parents, but that's very encouraging to me. 
should be encouraging to you. Your faith has a preserving power. It does. It does. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 13? You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Remember that whole uh, verse? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Salt has a preserving influence. That's what it was used for in those days. But it must never lose its saltiness or it no longer has that power. It no longer has that ability. So the, the thing to us is this. You, you, you must always be salt. We're not to lose our, our saltiness, which, which, which means that, that we are salt and light all the time to our parents, uh, to our, as parents to our kids, not just on, on Sundays, not just when we're here, not just by bringing them to, to, to church. Your faith, your prayers, your instruction, your example, your love, all of those things have a preserving influence in the life of your children. Faith preserves. And if you've given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and you've chosen to follow him, your faith has preserved you. But preserved from what? Judgment. I want to remind you of Psalm 37, 28. It says, for the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off, preserved for forever. Now, you can look at this and go, well, that's a lot of pressure, so I really got to be faithful. It's all about my faith. My faith must preserve me. No, it's not the measure of your faith. It's not your ability uh, to have this great faith, but it's the object of your faith. Jesus is the one that preserves you. In fact, I want you to look at Jude 1, 1. It says, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved by your faith? No, preserved in Jesus Christ. It is by our faith, but the preserver is Jesus Christ. Now, going back to what we're looking at, having that received that initial uh, instruction, uh, his faith being preserved regarding the origin of his people, at some point, Moses he had to make the faith of his parents, the faith of his people, his own faith. You know, you can't ride on the coattails of your parents' faith, can you? That doesn't get you to heaven. You don't go, oh, well, all my family were Christians, so therefore, no, no. At some point, it must become your own faith. You've got to own that faith. And that's the same for all of us. Um, we, if we've been brought up in the faith, at some point, we, we can't just be saved by the faith of our parents. It has to be our own faith. And this really brings us to the second point we see in here. It's faith's identification. At some point, you have to identify with Christ. You no longer just identify with your people. Oh, that's my identity. No, your identity is in Christ himself. You must identify with Christ. And we certainly see that in Hebrews 11. Look at the passage again. We'll, we'll put it on the screen for you. This is verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, how, how did this happen? When, when did it happen? What, what, when did he identify with his faith? Because I've just sort of said it. He was raised by his mother. How do we know these things? Well, go back to Exodus chapter 2. Look at verses 11 and 12. This has always been a mystery to me. I don't know if it has been to you. Because you have Moses being born. You have him being named by the mother, right? And then she's, he's, he's raised as a prince of Egypt. And then you come to verse 11, it says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren, and he looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And so he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. That's always been a mystery to me. He's raised as a prince of Egypt. What, what in the world does he care about that? 
Why, why would he go kill an, an, an Egyptian unless at some point he'd come to identify with the God of Israel? Unless at some point he'd accepted who he was. It says that he went out to visit his brethren. Now, here's another thing to understand. In this account, there is a time lapse. You have to know there's a great gap between verse 10, when he's drawn out of the water and named Moses, and verse 11, where it says he was, he was grown. In our Hebrews passage, it says he became of age. There is a 40-year gap. Did you know that? Somebody might have thought, like, oh, maybe he's a teenager. You know, 40 years have passed. Now, how do we know that? Am I just estimating? Am I just making a guess? Well, once again, we go to that wonderful saint, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, because Stephen is the one that tells us this. It's 7, verse 22. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. So it's Stephen that tells us, wow, he was 40. There was a big gap between those verses. In fact, you should mark that so you don't forget that when you go from verse 10 to verse 11. So Stephen recalls this account from Exodus. He tells us Moses was 40, and that happened when he visited his brethren. So that's definitely this uh, account. So for 40 years, he was brought up as a prince of Egypt. That's a long time. He would have received a, a formal education. He would have learned to read and write hieroglyphics. Um, he would have learned the ways of the royal court. He would have learned many skills. And at this point, after all that, he decides to visit his brethren. And it just says, seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him, he avenged him, he was oppressed, and he struck down uh, the Egyptian. And I have always wondered why, seemingly out of nowhere, after 40 years, Moses acted to protect a slave. But listen to what Stephen says in the very next verse, verse 25. Why did he do that? For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. Now, why would Moses suppose that? Why would Moses go out there and suppose that they would understand you're going to get delivered by me? Unless he believed that. Unless he had been told that. Unless he had been instructed about that. I believe it happened by Jochebed. In those days that he was being reared by his mother the children of Israel didn't understand his mission, but he certainly did. He supposed that they would understand, but they didn't. So he decided it was time to act, to identify with his people and with the God of his people. And that is true of us. We must pick a point where we go, I identify with Christ. It's not the faith of my family. It's my own uh, faith. And he did that. In fact, Hebrews 11 goes on to say that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He rejected something pretty amazing, the power and prestige of the world. Think about it, a prince of Egypt, this great economic power of the day. So in his eyes, the world, in the eyes of the world at least, he was giving up absolutely everything, wasn't he? But to inherit what? Well, nothing. Now, these were slaves. But from a spiritual standpoint, it's the opposite. He was giving up absolutely nothing for everything. Again, the same is true of us. At some point, our faith must become our faith, our faith. We must identify with Christ and his people. And that means a couple things. I'm going to go through these real quick. That's going to mean saying no to some things of the world. And I think that's what people hate about Christianity. Oh, it's just a bunch of no's. You can't do this and you can't do that. But I think there's more than the no's. But let me give you a couple. The first is saying no to the power and prestige. And that's certainly what he did there. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
Often what the world glories in or values means little or nothing to God. God values things that are based on uh, entirely different criteria. Remember, as great as Moses was, Jesus told us of a man that was even greater than Moses, greater than any person in the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, there's an angel, and he kind of gives us a hint. He says this, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This does sound like a great man. Who could this be? Who was this great man? Jesus reveals him in this statement in Matthew eleven eleven. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Listen, John the Baptist, John was not born into a prominent family. He spent his early years living in the desert. Remember how he's described? He, he wears camel's hair and he, he, he eats locusts and wild honey. He just kind of sounds like a crazy dude living out in the desert. So in the eyes of the world, he was not great. But in the eyes of Jesus, Jesus saw him differently. He, he values things differently. He saw a great man. And when we begin to identify with Christ, you know what happens to our value system? It begins to change. We value things the way Christ values them. We see things that are really valuable. But the world's power and prestige then to us mean nothing. We were just having some dinner with some folks last night, having a great time and sharing some of my acting stories. I don't know why, but we were just talking about that and um, talked about walking away from that life. You know, you, you know I, I, I wasn't that successful, but, you know, I was on the path and you thought, oh, I'm going to have fame and wealth and all these things. But when, the, when God called me, it was not a problem to say no to those things. I've talked to so many people over the years that said, didn't you miss that? Don't you look back? Don't you regret that? Because it just can't comprehend such a thing. But listen, when, when Christ calls you to follow him, you do begin to see behind what's really valuable. You, you, you move aside, oh, the things, well, those aren't valuable because they're really temporary. But you lay up treasures in heaven, don't you? So you, it's not a big deal to say no to power and prestige. The world says, oh, it's too much to sacrifice. It's nothing to sacrifice, to say no to power and prestige. Moses said no. He, he could have been a prince. He could have been a king if he said no to those things. A second thing he said no to, and we must too, is saying no to the passing pleasures. Now, that's probably even harder for people. Oh, you know, you can't do this and you can't do that. It's so fun. It feels so good. You know, you can't do these things. But listen, what Moses chose to say no to in Hebrews 11, choosing rather to a suffer, suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. I, I hope you heard that. Look at it again. The sinful, self-indulgent, pampered life of royalty, you know, that was rejected in favor of suffering. <laughs> Did you hear it? suffering. Listen, if we're honest, most of us wouldn't mind trading in our life for just experience the lifestyle of rich and famous just for a little bit, right? You'd like to go, I just want to go try it out. Let me, let, let me drive that Lamborghini. Let me go live in that villa. I want to just give it a go. But listen, all you have to do is look at these people's lives for a short amount of time, and you can see that those things don't fulfill them. Those pleasures that they're enjoying, that kind of lifestyle they're enjoying, it's passing. It's temporary. And that's the lie of sin. The lie of sin is that you all know it, right? The lie of sin is that if you do this, hey, you'll find fulfillment. Just do this and you'll be filled. But what happens when you do it? You're not fulfilled. You, ju you just want more. It didn't do anything for you. you. You crave more. And if you're a believer and you sin, you have the guilt. <laughs> oh, I can't believe I did that again. And you know it's not filling. You know it doesn't give you anything. 
It gives us passing pleasure, we're, we're, we're told. Temporal. It's a pleasure. I would agree with the world. It's like, oh, it's, yeah, yeah, it's a pleasure, but it's only temporary. It doesn't last, and it doesn't fulfill you. You only want more. So how do we say no to these things? How do you go, oh, you know, how does that sell Christianity? We're not trying to sell it. It's not about the things that we say no to. Here's what it's about, the things we say yes to. And that's the thing that's drawn here, saying yes to the promised reward. There is something promised to believers. Look at verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Listen, when we identify with Christ, something is promised here, reproach. That is promised. Reproach, um, onai, dismas, is, is ridicule. It's, it's insults. It's dishonor. Those things do come to people who identify with Christ. They reviled him, and so they will revile those who follow him. But remember this. We're talking about value system. We're talking about the things we value. These things have great value when you look at them through the eyes of faith. You say, how, how? How could being ridiculed and insulted and dishonored for the name of Christ be a valuable thing? Well, remember the apostles in the early church. Now, when they started that church, all of them were arrested. All of them were told to stop preaching in the name of Christ. They're all um, in prison. And then an angel opens the doors and let them all free and says, oh, yeah, go back to the temple, keep preaching. So they go back to the temple and they keep preaching. So when they go, the, 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 the priests go back, they go back to get the, the apostles out. They're gone. Remember that? And they're looking for them. They said, oh, I, I saw them. They're in the temple preaching. So they go and find them. They say, hey, didn't we tell you guys to stop preaching in his name? What's their answer? We've got to obey God rather than men. And so they deliberate. They say, what should we do? And, and someone wise says, listen, if this thing is really from God, then you're just fighting against God. You're going to lose. So if it's, it's from men, that it will fail ultimately anyway. So why don't we just let them go? but not before we beat them real good. And so they beat them. They beat them. Now listen, these are Jews in front of their people getting beaten. Not just the pain, but shame, dishonor, ridicule at the beginning of the church. I follow Christ. Oh, great, let me beat you. That's the first thing they get. It's right off the bat. But this is what happens in Acts 5, 41. So they departed from the presence of the council. This is right after they're beaten. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Can you wrap your mind around that? They rejoiced in that. They looked at the physical suffering. They looked at the shame with a different value system. How they look at that, that's reward. We're counted worthy of this. And indeed, we're all promised suffering when we choose to believe in Christ. We are. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You know, the author of Hebrews, what he's doing is reminding these Jews that he's writing to some who have already suffered reproaches, according to chapter 10, that they, they can suffer for Christ's sake. It's, it's a value thing, and Moses did it. Their great hero suffered reproach for the sake of Christ. Now, if you're thinking about that, maybe you go, wait, how? Moses suffered for the sake of Christ? Moses didn't know Christ. Moses lived 1,500 years before Christ. How could he suffer for the reproach of Christ. In fact, look at the verse again, Hebrews 11. It says this, esteeming the reproach of Christ. So he esteemed that ridicule. He esteemed those things, but he says of Christ. He suffered reproach for Christ. How did he do that? This is how, because he is identified with Christ's people, right? Those are his people. 
The promise that through God's people that all the nations of the earth would be blessed is ultimately fulfilled in who? Christ, right? Jesus came through that line. And that's why every believer since, since Adam, everyone who's come to the faith, everyone who's been saved since then, had been saved by the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that saves Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, no matter when he or she, she lived, before his coming, after his coming. So it's even true that every believer that suffered for their faith suffered reproaches for Christ. In fact, you think about David. David suffered, didn't he? He, he, he didn't know Christ. He knew uh, there would be a Messiah, but he didn't know Christ. And in Psalm 69, 9, it says, because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, he's talking to God the Father. You know, I'm getting reproached because I love you and I serve you. He's talking about God, but his suffering was ultimately for the sake of Christ, just as much as Paul's suffering was. Moses suffered for the sake of Christ. He was able to esteem the reproaches as being greater than all the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he looked to the reward. Look at Hebrews 11 again. It says, he looked to the reward. You know, David, even in his suffering, was able to look past the suffering to a greater thing, the reward. And in Psalm 71, 20, it says this, you have shown me great and severe troubles. He's talking to God. You've shown me some difficult things, but you shall revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. You shall increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. See, the, the treasures of this world, they're, they're nothing. They're nothing compared to the riches of God. And you know what? We are all promised all that we need um, by God. Everything that we need is supplied through the riches of God. God has more riches than any nation, any kingdom, any person of this world. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But listen, in addition to that, the reproaches themselves are a reward. That's how the apostles looked at those, those things. They, counted worthy, they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And in 1 Peter 4.14, it says this, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Just allow that to sink in for a moment. You suffer reproach because of your love for Christ, your obedience to him. What's it say? God's spirit rests upon you. God is with you. That's incredible. Do you, do you need anything else? The God of glory is with you. So while identification um, with Christ means saying no to a few things, it's really more about what we say yes to, that promised reward. There's another result of faith, and that's separation. We see that in verse 27, Hebrews eleven twenty-seven. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, after... Going back to our account, Moses slew that Egyptian. He killed that Egyptian who was beating the Hebrew slave. He did leave Egypt in fear. He did fear because the king wanted to kill him. In, in, in chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, And when he went out uh, the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? And then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh, and he dwelt in the land of Midian. So that fleeing was in fear. He fled to another land, to Midian, outside of Egypt. 
And during that time, he got married, he had a son. He's in Midian for 40 years before God called him from that burning bush and told him, all right, Moses, now's the time for you to be the deliverer I called you to be. He had forsaken Egypt. He had separated himself completely. He only went back after the Lord appeared to him to go back. And he went back to a new Pharaoh. We're told in that time that that old Pharaoh died, that old king, and a new king of Egypt took over. And Moses went into his presence, and he went into his presence time and time and time again, demanding that he let the people of Israel go. How did he do that over and over again? He didn't fear the wrath of the king. You see that? There's no fear of the wrath of the king. But he had to be separate from the world. He had to be separate from Egypt. We're to be separate from the world. There is a separation that comes in our faith. Paul elaborates this on, on this in 2 Corinthians 6. You guys know these, these verses. But he says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. There's a separation from the world that takes place. How did Moses separate without fear of the king? You know what? He saw a greater king. That's what he saw. He saw a greater king. That's not a king. I have a greater king. Hebrews eleven twenty seven. that he did that, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He saw the invisible God. That's what it says. Now, this isn't a reference, I don't believe, to God speaking to Moses face to face. I know we looked at that earlier. He didn't speak to him face to face until after they left Egypt. And even then, Moses didn't really see God. He saw the form of God, and, and he was spoke to God. and He had such a personal relationship with God, it was as if face to face. But Scripture tells us that no one has seen God. No, no one has seen God or can see God. 1 Timothy 6, 16, Paul says, Who alone has immortality, speaking of God, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. We also know that because this is the author of Hebrews writing to Jews, and he's not trying to encourage them um, to, to, to be faithful by telling them, oh, the way you can do that is to see the face of God. Just go see him face to face, and you'll be good. That would make no sense. <laughs> but what he's trying to get them to see is that they need to live as if they see the invisible God. I haven't seen God with my physical eyes, have you? But you know what? With my spiritual eyes, I see him all the time. I hope you do too. How, how do we do that? I think we do it like, like Job did. You know, all, Job suffered greatly, didn't he? Didn't he? And after all that suffering, he, he dared to question God. He just began to question, well, you know, as any of us would, why are these things, these things happening to me? And God had, God had to sit Job down and give him a discourse on, on how great God, he is, right? Okay, maybe you're, you have a small-minded view of who I am. You're, you're talking to God here. So he sat him down and said, let me tell you who I am. And after he did all that, here's Job's response in Job 42, verse 3. He said, you asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I, I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Gosh. He's basically saying, my faith. All my life was lived as if I had just been hearing of you. But now for the first time, it's as if I see you. And Job is described as a blameless man, an upright man, a man who feared God and shunned evil at the beginning of his life. And here he is at the end saying, 
it's like I never saw you before. It's the first time I'm seeing you. You know, we can separate from the world because we see the one who owns the world. We see the greater king, the king of kings, and we see him who is invisible. You know, that's faith, isn't it? Being certain of what we do not see. Listen, two more results of faith. I'll try to go through these briefly here. They're both seen through Moses. Faith's provision. Faith's provision. This is verse 28. By faith, faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Now, this brings us to one of the most dramatic events in Moses' life. Remember all the, the um, plagues that are coming upon Egypt by the hand of Moses, and all these plagues are meant to, to humble Pharaoh so that he would let the people go, and he just won't do it. He keeps hardening his heart. And so the last, the final uh, plague that God says he's going to send an angel of death, and the angel's going to kill the firstborn male uh, of every home there in, in Egypt. And so he gives instructions even to uh, the Jews to take a lamb, to slaughter it, to put its blood on the lintels of the door of the house, and then get inside the house and don't leave the house. You're under the covering of this blood in that sense. And this is what it says in Exodus 12. If you're still in Exodus, skip ahead. This is, this is how God describes it to them in, in chapter 12, verse 12. He says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. So it's going to happen on one night. And it will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. What God says is this, when I see the blood, when the blood is there, I'll pass over. Now, let me just tell you something. There was no power in that blood. We sing about the power of the blood. I'm trying to make something clear here. There was no power in that blood. Why? That was the blood of an animal. That was the blood of an animal on there. God was looking at the blood, and he said, when I see that blood, then I'm going to pass over. But that blood being on the doorposts was an act of obedience and faith in God. Does that make sense? In his provision, he says, I have to do this. I'm going to send my angel of death, and he's going to kill every firstborn male. But if you do this, then you will be saved. That blood was symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice would save all who have faith in him. What I'm saying is this, that God provided the the ceremony for Moses and his people, and they trusted in his provision. It was his provision that did that. And when someone accepts Christ, we use those words, what are they accepting? You say, oh, I hope that you accept Christ. Do they even know what you mean when you say accept Christ? What are they accepting? God's provision for salvation. It's the same thing. That's what you're accepting. In the Old Testament, the Passover signified Israel's liberation from Egypt. They're as good as free from bondage. But in the New Testament, that cross signifies liberation from bondage for us. Bondage to what? Sin, death. All those who trust in the finished work of Christ on that cross find forgiveness. They find freedom from sin because of the gracious provision of God. That's faith's provision, seen in that wonderful thing, the Passover. 
One final result of faith, and this is a pretty big one. Faith's promise, verse 29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Now, this is probably the most well-known event, but, but God promised deliverance to the children of Israel, and yet when they, when they got to the Red Sea, they're all leaving. They get to the Red Sea, they appeared to be trapped because the Egyptians had to change their mind, and they were pursuing them. So on the one side, the Egyptians certainly going to slaughter them or take them back to slavery. On the other side, drowning in the Red Sea. They were trapped here. And with the Egyptian army closing in, they're, 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 they're crying out to Moses, oh, weren't there enough graves in Egypt? You bring us out here to die? What's wrong with you? And they're, they're, they're fearing. This is what Moses says in Exodus 14. Skip ahead to Exodus 14. These are wonderful words at a very pivotal moment. Exodus 14, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still, and here's the key, see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. See, God promised them salvation. And even when it didn't seem possible, it didn't seem realistic, he did it. That's because salvation is a promise that only God can accomplish. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you, Moses says. And this event is so well known, I know, but let's read it anyway, huh? In Exodus 14, beginning of verse 21, all right? So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and he made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now just skip down to verse uh, 27. All the people got through. And now Moses turns around again, and Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. That was the pivotal moment that God had accomplished what he had promised. He brought them through the waters. He provided salvation. In fact, that's the word that's used in Exodus. They were saved. But those that tried to get there on their own, the Egyptians tried to get to the other side, perished, didn't they? But the point here is what God has promised, he will accomplish. We're not to doubt. We're not to fear. We're not to uh, second guess God. Faith's promise is summed up by the words of Christ that I want to remind you today. In John 10, 27, it says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Faith preserves us ultimately to inherit that promise. And I think for some people, getting to that very last bit, you, you can begin to doubt. There's a great allegorical story called Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's Progress is really the, the allegory of the Christian life. And the main character, his name is Christian, but he meets all kinds of different characters along the way. He has very dif much difficulties. There's the valley of despair, the giant of despair. He meets people like worldly wise men. 
He meets people like faithful, people who are martyred in uh, Vanity Fair. He meets all kinds of different characters, but along the path, he's encouraged in his faith and he continues. In the very last step, he's got one remaining friend named Hopeful. And he can see the celestial city. It's representing heaven. And there's a river separating them. It's the river of death. And that's the last thing he has to cross. And you know, for us sometimes, that river, that death, like, is there something really beyond death? I mean, can I really be taken a past this veil that separates this life to the next? And it's such a beautiful picture. And I just want to read you the account. It's incredible. Listen, this is Christian and hopeful. One great challenge remains as the men come to the end of their pilgrimage. They find that they must still cross the river of death. This is probably the most powerful dramatic element of the final stage. There's no way to the celestial city except through this, that last enemy. And here's the account. Then they asked the men if the waters were all of a depth. And they said, no, yet they could not help them in that case. For they said, you shall find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of the place. Then they addressed themselves to the water and entering Christian began to sink. And crying out to his good friend, Hopeful, he said, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. Once more, Hopeful ministers to his friend, reminding him of all that is true. And eventually, Christian is able to get his head above water to make his way to the far bank. Then I saw in my dream, this is John Bunyan writing again, that Christian was in a muse a while, to whom also Hopeful added these words, Be of good cheer. Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. And with that, Christian break out with a loud voice. Oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. Isaiah 43, 2. And they both took courage. And the enemy was after that as still as a stone until they were gone over. And Christian therefore presently found ground to stand upon. And so it followed that the rest of the river was but shallow and thus they got over. You know, that's faith's promise. That's faith's promise. The reward is, is real. And even if that prospect of death frightens you, listen, Moses was able to look past that. He never entered the promised land physically. He was able to see it afar off. Another example of that. But he inherited it. And he trusted in the one who promised it. And that's faith's promise that he will hold you fast to the end. And that's the song we're going to sing as we close. He will hold you fast. Don't get caught up in my, my faith has to be so strong. Yes, we have, have a, a, a need to have faith and our faith is bolstered by one another. Our faith is strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Our faith is increased when we study his word. But ultimately, it is Christ who preserves you and he will hold you fast. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the amazing life of Moses the example of faith that he demonstrates for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you will hold us fast, that we will one day pass through those waters and enter into the gates of heaven. You will get us even there. Lord, just help us in our weakness. Help us in our struggles. We do doubt sometimes. We do fear sometimes. We do lack faith uh, sometimes. But Lord, may our faith never perish. May our faith never evaporate. May we always have the faith and trust in you that we need. Lord, thank you that that great promise comes to us in the end, that you will save us. You will do it. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.